You're listening to Uptown Radio. It's Thursday, May 11, 2023. I'm Thomas Copeland. Security officials at the Mexican border are bracing for an influx of migrants after a change in federal rules. Are the migrants headed for New York City? There'll be a lag before you see any increase, unless the governor of Texas puts everyone in a bus and drives them up here, and they'll get here pretty quickly. A handful of NYC public schools are making students counsel one another. The social workers don't have the time to do it themselves. If you are the school social worker, their caseloads are insane. I mean, you know, kids are going to fall through the cracks. They've got to just triage them. And in romantic news, dating apps are getting dumped. Now people want to meet in person. I'm kind of waiting for the time that, like, I'm in the Whole Foods and the guy drops an orange and I'm like, oh, here's your orange. And then it's just the best, cutest meet cute ever. But the thing is, is that, like, I haven't really been dropping the oranges. You know what I mean? All this and more on Uptown Radio. But first, the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. U.S. Border Patrol is bracing for the arrival of a historically high number of migrants, many of them seeking asylum, hours before Title 42 expires. That's the pandemic-era public health order the Trump and Biden administrations used to deter illegal migration. Tens of thousands of people, including some from as far away as Africa and China, have been gathering at Mexico's border with the U.S. You have to sit down. Volunteers have been trying to keep order as they distribute food to the crowd through spaces in the border fence. Volunteer Nina Douglas describes a few of the most urgent needs. Seeing the need for everything from diapers and baby food to feminine hygiene products. But what folks are most anxious about is cold. What they most want are blankets for warmth, food and water. Meanwhile, the president of Mexico says he has mobilized troops to the border. NPR's Ada Peralta reports the leader has given orders not to use force. Title 42 was a pandemic-era policy that allowed for the immediate expulsion of many migrants, including those seeking asylum. Its end means more migrants have amassed at the U.S. southern border. President Andres Manuel López Obrador accuses Republican lawmakers of hoping for violence at the border, so he has sent troops to, quote, avoid provocations. We have to be vigilant, he said, to avoid violence. While Title 42 is ending, other restrictions on asylum seekers will take effect. Mexico has agreed to continue taking non-Mexican migrants deported from the U.S. The two countries hope that will discourage further migration. Eero Pralta, NPR News, Mexico City. The CIA says it is stepping up efforts to deal with sexual misconduct cases at the spy agency. As NPR's Greg Myrie tells us, this comes in the wake of several recent allegations. At least three women at the CIA have reportedly gone to the House Intelligence Committee this year to allege sexual harassment or assault. A lawyer says they took the action because they were discouraged by the way their agency was handling complaints. A senior CIA official, speaking on condition of anonymity, acknowledges the agency needs to improve its handling of such cases. Quote, We know we have work to do, said the official, who declined to say how many allegations were currently being investigated. The CIA also announced Dr. Talita Jackson, who's handled sexual misconduct cases for the Navy, will be joining the CIA in a similar role. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closes down 221 points or more than half a percent ending the day. At 33,309, the Nasdaq was up 22, S&P was down 7. This is NPR News.
From Columbia Radio News, I'm Henrietta McFarlane. Justin, New York Attorney General Letitia James has filed a lawsuit against the gun accessory manufacturer Mean LLC. She cited the illegal possession of assault weapons, including the weapon used in mass shooting in Buffalo in May 2022. Attorney General James says the lawsuit against Mean LLC is part of an ongoing effort to pursue justice for the 10 innocent lives that were unjustly taken. Brooklyn Council member Sandy Nurse is introducing a package of bills that would increase penalties on building owners who illegally remove tenants. That's after it was found last year that NYPD rarely enforced the city's eviction law. She also wants the city to push laws ensuring that unlawful eviction cases brought by tenants are heard within five days. And as we just heard, today the federal government has officially ended the COVID-19 pandemic. New York City was the pandemic's first major epicenter in the US, and from now on, there will be a long wind down for many services related to the pandemic. New Yorkers will now have to pay for tests, and the vaccine rollout will slow. But for some New Yorkers, like Justin Uhl, an official official end doesn't mean no one's thinking about it. No, I mean, I think COVID's still a very real thing, whether it's like a, a looming global threat anymore, probably not. More on that later in the show. At least two cases of drug-resistant ringworm infections have been detected in New York City. The infection was first identified in a 47-year-old woman who had developed a bad case of ringworm, also known as tinea, whilst traveling in Bangladesh. A rash had erupted across most of her body and typical antifungal creams did nothing to alleviate it. Medical professionals say it's a serious health concern. And it's a beautiful day in New York City. Whack on some SPF and go out and enjoy that sun. Henrietta McFarlane, Columbia Radio News. This is Uptown Radio. I'm Thomas Copeland. Welcome to the show. Well, you've just been hearing there about Title 42 coming to an end tonight. Title 42 was imposed during the pandemic. It allows for border officials to expel migrants attempting to enter the United States. And that means they can't get asylum. Federal Officials now expect the border crossings could as much as double after Title 42 is lifted, and that could mean a surge of migrants in New York. But Kevin Appleby from the Centre for Migration Studies says those predictions could be overstated. So I asked him to break down what might happen. The short answer is is it's hard to say. Um, it depends on a lot of different factors. Um, first of all, whether whether those levels are accurate, that there'll be a doubling. Um, second is, will the Texas state government continue to bus migrants to New York as they've done in the past? And third, you know, a lot depends on on who comes across the border. So there, there are a lot of factors that are going on here. I would say there, there would be an increase in the number of immigrants coming. I would caution, however, not to believe that it's going to be a surge that is out of the ordinary from other situations. It's reported that in New York, officials are saying that it could be up to a thousand migrants could arrive per day. Does that sound feasible to you? I think it's partially expectation management. Now, I, 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 there's a lot of attention to what's going on at the border. There's a lot of attention to what happens after Title 42. But in, in truth, there are a lot of other restrictions that the Biden administration is putting in place. They're not going to be releasing everyone into the interior. So that'll minimize the numbers. I can't speak to the a thousand per day. I think that's a worst case scenario, in my opinion. That doesn't mean that there won't be, you know, you know, hundreds that might arrive per day. 
In that case, why is it that you think that the New York governor has decided to issue a state of emergency if the number of migrants crossing the border might not be as high as some people are predicting? She's probably just trying to be prepared in case there is a surge. When when you issue a state of emergency, the first thing in someone's mind is that they're in danger. And I think that's the wrong message, that, you know, that there, there's something calamitous about to happen. That That's what I would push back on, that messaging that, you know, People should feel insecure or unsafe or, you know, the sky's falling. Well, what's the typical timeline, Kevin, that we've seen so far in terms of when people cross the border to arriving in New York? They, they have to go through a process. They're usually detained until they can establish that they have a credible fear. And then they have to be processed and given a, a court date. It could be several weeks. So there'll be a lag before you see any increase unless the governor of Texas puts everyone in a bus and drives them up here, and they'll get here pretty quickly. You just said a second ago that some of this would depend on the actions of some of those governors of southern states busing migrants up to New York. Do you think that trend is going to continue or increase following the end of Title 42? Well, I think so. I mean, Florida just passed a, a law that would provide the governor there, Mr. DeSantis, $12 million to do it. So there, and, and there's been a political bounce from these Republican governors who have done this, at least among their base. So it, it's it's in there. It's in there. there. There's been no penalty for them. So I can see it continuing to happen. New York City has this court mandate to house all of these migrants overnight. It's the only major city with this right to shelter rule. Do you think it will be possible to sustain that if you start to see numbers that are anywhere close to what local officials are saying could be could be the number who arrive? They had them in shelters, but the shelters are becoming full. Um, so, yeah, if there is a surge, and that's a big if, uh, there'll, there'll be a challenge there. But, you know, again, the big factor is what will the numbers look like? And the Adams administration is saying that all of this could cost up to $4 billion over the next two years. And the mayor is placing a lot of responsibility at the feet of the federal government for not doing enough to support New York. Following the end of Title 42, is, is, is the federal government now going to have to pay more? Well, I think there'll be pressure on them to pay more. But the truth is, they're feeling the pressure on this from lo localities. And it's not just New York. It's other big cities that are experiencing the same thing. And, and the administration is aware of it. We'll be keeping an eye on this story as it develops, but we'll have to leave it there for now. Kevin Appleby from the Center for Migration Studies, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Well, Title 42 has come to the end, and so has the pandemic. That's according to the Department of Health and Human Services. It says the nation's ready to declare its state of emergency over COVID-19 over. We sent our reporter, Trisha Stortz, to see how New Yorkers feel about the announcement. The government says the emergency's over. And sitting on a folding stool inside the white-tented COVID-19 testing booth on 116th Street, Adela Hoxha says... That does seem to be the case. Yeah, maybe yes. Yes, just do it for uh, traveling or uh, feel symptoms. Testing sites like this once had lines of people wrapped around city blocks. But Hoxha says most of her days are quiet. She doesn't get a lot of test takers. It's uh, 10 or 20 in a day. That's it is the limit. That's another shift compared to the height of the pandemic, when pharmacies were limiting the numbers of tests you could buy, and New Yorkers were also stockpiling them at home. The end of the emergency means federal funding for free testing and treatment is coming to an end. But 
The city will continue distributing free tests at libraries and other public spaces until its supply runs out. As for the New Yorkers I encountered, they seem generally relaxed about COVID. A few feet away, Maeve Cunningham is waiting for a friend in front of a busy farmer's market. She says she hasn't worried about COVID much since last year. I just don't see the same amount of stress. I feel like people have more resources and options. People are still obviously, yeah, like don't want to get don't don't want to get sick, especially if they're immunocompromised. But I think resources and stuff have gotten significantly better. But the city has already rolled back many of its free resources, like its mobile testing bans and at-home vaccination program for homebound New Yorkers. And there's one big change that's more symbolic of how New Yorkers seem to feel about the pandemic. Masks have become somewhat of a rare sighting. I don't know. It was just like one day, like everybody like kind of stopped. Not everyone. Down the block, Stephanie Lim is wearing headphones and a blue mask, but not for COVID-related reasons. So I see that you're wearing a mask. Are you still concerned? Yes and no. I think it's I wear it just because the subway kind of grosses me out, to be honest. <laughs> Nearby, Justin Uhl is also wearing a mask, and also not because he's worried about COVID specifically. Why do you personally still mask? I'm just wearing a mask right now because I'm sick and I don't want to get other people sick. I think it's just kind of... Uh, you know, wearing the mask with during COVID has kind of increased my um, willingness to like reach for it when I'm sick. The pandemic has had many lingering effects. And for many New Yorkers who lost loved ones or became ill, it was a catastrophe. And do you think that the city's announcement will change people's general sentiment towards COVID? No, not really. I think people made up their own minds about things beforehand. Like they, they don't want to deal with it anymore. And whether someone makes an official announcement probably doesn't change that much. The state of emergency ends tonight at midnight. There are an estimated 200,000 uninsured New Yorkers. The city's public hospitals say they will continue to cover their care for free or minimal cost. Trisha Stortz, Columbia Radio News. Asian American voters across New York sharply increased their support for Republicans. Asian Americans shifted to the right by 23 percentage points compared with 2018. That's huge. It happened after more than a decade of Asian Americans in this city predominantly backing Democrats. Lee Tran looks at how these new Republicans are trying to continue those gains. Idari restaurant in Brooklyn normally serves dim sum and caters to Chinese weddings, but today they are serving up politics. This is a fundraiser for Ying Tan, who's running for a city council seat here in Sunset Park, Brooklyn's Chinatown. In this area, we have 54% of the Asian community, mm -hmm. so the Asian voters. Mm -hmm. So that makes a majority of the Asian. Mm -hmm. But for me personally, because I'm an Asian, I, have, I was born in China, I know the language, I know the background. So I know what the people need, what they are concerned about. So that one is my advantage. Perhaps one disadvantage. She's a Republican in a city that normally votes Democratic. But Ying Tan thinks this is the year that an Asian American Republican can win in New York City because she says people are scared. There have been a lot of news reports about anti-Asian American violence, and she says Republicans have the answer. 
I believe the Republican policy is very strong on the public safety. That's why I'm running for the Republican line. And also my platform, the number one is the public safety, law and order. One of the volunteers working for the campaign, Nick Tan, who is the recording secretary of the New York Young Republican Club, says Asian Americans are the future of the Republican Party. These two Tans are not related. People like Ying, people like myself, who are behind the scenes working hard to make our city and our community a better place, not just for Asian Americans, but for all, I think we're the ones who are going to be the future of the Republican Party. To win the city council seat, Ying Tan has to bring together all the Republicans in the district. Republicans like Dimitri Kugel. Ying is trying to bring attention to a problem that's been around for such a long time and it, it just ha hasn't been looked into by any elected Democrat. And what is that? Crime against Asians all over the city. The residents of Brooklyn's Chinatown will be hearing a lot about this message, that the city is unsafe and people are out to get them. But Christopher Herman, a criminologist at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, says the statistics show no crime wave in New York City. I don't think a lot of people pay attention to the statistics or the, you know, the, the real numbers, let's call it. Um, and, you know, the real numbers can be manipulated really depending on how you look at it. Professor Herman acknowledges that Asian Americans worry about the anti-Asian violence which started during the pandemic. He said current statistics, however, show hate crimes are down. I'm sure if you talk to Asians, they're going to say, oh, yeah, I'm still a little fearful of being attacked or being, uh, you know, singled out because I'm Asian. Uh, and again, the numbers show that the hate crimes are really down a lot uh, yeah. this year, and it's no longer as big of a problem as it was in 2020, 2021. He believes that the crime rates in New York do not depend on which party wins the elections, though. You know, the research shows there's not really much of a difference between Republicans and Democrats when it comes to practical uh, justice terms. <laughs> um, you know, crime goes up, crime goes down doesn't really matter if the governor or the mayor is a Democratic or Republican. Even if the law and order message works, Asian American candidates will also have to deal with the issue of Donald Trump. In many ways, he still runs the Republican Party, and he offended a lot of Asian Americans. Nick Tan, who introduced me to the fundraiser, says they are working on that problem. Yes, was it frustrating when Trump got on stage and did China virus and you know, Kung Flu? Look, I wasn't happy, but at the end of the day, I think that shows how desperate Asian Americans are now at this point where we see all our gains that we've made through the generation of hard work and labor possibly being rolled back that it's so bad that we're actually willing to vote for the guy who says these jokes and these names. Tan also states that the Democrats and liberals have a communication issue with Asian American voters. And I think there's a disconnect with a lot of liberals and Democrats who are like, oh, of course you guys will never vote Republican because look at what Trump says. But if it's the policies that he's putting forward and actually enacting, that shows how much Asian Americans are, A, desperate, and are willing to tolerate that. Well, we'll have to wait and see how well this message works. Jeffrey Hennig, a professor of political science at Teachers College, thinks that Asian Americans in New York may continue to vote more red, 
but that might not make a difference. Asian Americans overall still voted more blue than red, even in New York, but by a much narrower margin than in the past. Uh, it's hard to tell. I think that there's a good chance that it will continue. However, Professor Hennig warned Democrats that they need to take the ship to red of Asian American voters seriously. And Democrats, of course, will try to come up with counter messaging. They're not just going to sit there and let the Republicans um, uh, uh, dominate uh, how these issues are framed. But it's it's been a struggle for Democrats to um, to uh, respond on 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 these issues. I think they'll try to get the message out um, in uh, high Asian communities. And it's it's an uphill battle right now, I think, um, for Democrats to to get that message across. The New York City Council election is this fall. State elections are next year. And we'll see how effective the messages are when the final vote is counted. Vitran, Columbia Radio News. Well, this is our final show of the semester, and we've asked several of our reporters to write personal commentaries for the occasion. The first two essays are all about maintaining the right attitude. First up, Henrietta McFarland shares her unusual coping mechanism. They say the secret to happiness is being grateful, but that's never really been my style. I have always been a complainer, and my poor dad and brother can vouch for that. A long car journey? I'd make sure to complain about needing to pee at least every half hour. I do have some self-control in romantic relationships when I can keep the complaints to myself. For a while, that is. Which brings me to a trip I took with my college boyfriend, Leo. He suggested we go on a post-graduation cycling trip in Scotland. I was deep in exam preparation despair at the time he asked and have absolutely no recollection of agreeing. But a couple of months later, when my friends headed off on vacation to Greek islands and Italian coastlines, I was dragging my bike, a tent, sleeping bag and about 10 kilos of food onto the first of many trains that would take us to the Scottish Outer Hebrides. Haven't heard of them? Well, I don't blame you. They're about as in the middle of nowhere as you can get. When my dad dropped us off at the station, I saw him turn to Leo and say, Um, good luck, mate. It was only on these train rides that I discovered Leo's carefully mapped out plans of a route stretching over 600 miles. I also established we would not be staying in campsites equipped with toilets and showers, but pitching our tents on random pieces of land that looked safe enough. At that moment, I had many thoughts which I did not choose to relay out loud. After all, I'd just graduated and I really did love this man. Perhaps my complaining was just a childhood trait I left far behind. And so I tried not to complain about sleeping on the ground. All the night we were attacked by a huge swarm of flying ants. But it was the next day when it became impossible not to unleash. I was cycling up a particularly steep hill when I realised there was a trickle of blood rolling down my leg. My body had decided this was the moment to begin my period. So there I was on the side of the road, grabbing onto a spiky plant and trying to change a tampon. Several large lorries zoomed past me. After three of these lorries, I gave up trying to hoist the lycra straps back over my shoulders and looked around for someone to blame for the situation I found myself in. And there was the culprit, my boyfriend Leo. Standing there waiting for me, holding our bike, looking suspiciously calm and only slightly concerned, he asked if I needed anything. Pass me the flipping tampon right now! 
Of course, it's always his fault when I get my period, but it was especially his fault this time. No longer worrying what he might think of me, I let him know exactly what I thought. You're clearly the one to blame for the ridiculously steep ascents of the Scottish mountains that are making my legs burn, and that there is so much mist everywhere that I can't see where I'm going, and for the fact that I can't get a cup of coffee because every cafe on these Scottish islands appears to be closed on Sundays. And you know what? I suddenly felt a lot better. Like myself. All of my complaining led to another reward, possibly because Leo couldn't bear to listen to me anymore, or because he was too freaked out by the whole bugs, period, steep hill, lack of shower situation. But he pulled out his phone and rapidly started googling indoor places to stay for the rest of the trip. We didn't actually have a big fight the entire trip, and the experience brought us closer together. He's still my boyfriend. In a world filled with toxic positivity, sometimes a good old vent is the solution. And it's always useful if you have someone you know well enough lined up for the job. Let's keep this between ourselves, but if someone asked me to go on another cycling trip around the Scottish Outer Hebrides, I'd probably end up saying yes. Well, that was our reporter, Henrietta McFarland. Next up in our commentary series is Eva Macias. She's going to talk about how her very different part-time jobs, they share something in common. If you've ever been to brunch on a Sunday, then you're familiar with the scene. A sea of pink and orange mimosas scattered across tables packed with girls in oversized sunglasses and clinking silverware so loud you can barely hear yourself think. And there's usually one or two very drunk people trying to convince the bartender for yet another round of bottomless bubbles. That's me in this scenario. Not the drunk person, but the bartender. And on any given weekend, I've been dealing with modified California Eggs Benedict since about 7am. Now, if you've ever hung out with a child between the ages of, I don't know, one and four, then you know what I mean when I say that a tiny human is not unlike a drunk brunch guest. I never expected that these two jobs would have so much in common, but after being a nanny for 15 years and in the service industry for nearly 20, a day with kids honestly feels like I'm behind the bar tending to my neediest guest. The last family I nannied for had two preteen girls and boy twin toddlers. They were like two tiny baby bosses ordering me around as soon as I walked in the door. Come downstairs, carry this, not like that. I hate the orange plate. How dare you bring me this plate? Why would you cut my sandwich? Are you stupid? Now I need a new one. And even though I just asked for a cheese stick, I actually hate cheese sticks now because you unwrapped it for me. Their grandfather would often look at me and say, you're so patient with them, it's amazing. I would just nod and smile, exasperated, but what I thought was, well, yeah, this is my job. I get paid to be patient. Just like I get paid to be polite to a group of high-maintenance women who seem to think they're the only group of people in the entire restaurant, despite being barely able to move amongst the hangry crowd. Miss... Miss, one of them calls, even though I'm clearly talking to another guest. First, she wants to know if the juice is freshly squeezed. I say yes. Yes, it is. It's fresh. Then she wants to know why there is no salmon salad anymore. There was a salmon salad last time, she tells me, four years ago. I sympathize with their frustration. And after what seems like about 37 hours of complaining, they finally begin to relax. You see, in these situations, whether someone is 4 or 54, 
The reason they're having a tantrum has nothing to do with you. And I've learned that the more I relax, the faster the other person realizes that I actually am there to help. The need to be cared for in a compassionate way never really leaves us. We carry it from toddlerhood to adulthood. So whether I'm coaxing a frustrated toddler or accommodating a needy guest, I simply take a deep breath, make eye contact, and tell them, yes, I understand. Let's find a solution. And then we all take a breakfast shot. Except for the kids, obviously. You're listening to Uptown Radio. Coming up, we check out New York City's 34th annual fleet show, an innovative new cars, 18-wheelers and tractors. And singles are dropping off the apps. We learn how they're looking for love in real life instead. Stick around. You're listening to Uptown Radio. There's more to come. Stay with us. In New York City public schools, there's approximately one social worker for every thousand students. If this sounds like there's too many kids to watch, you're right. Social workers say they are overwhelmed. But a new after-school program is trying to address the gap by training students how to counsel each other. Our reporter, Trisha Stortz, stopped by one of the Brooklyn middle schools hosting the program. Months ago, Principal Lauren Cooper of PS178 started something new. Rather than send every student showing signs of anxiety or depression to a guidance counselor, she began to suggest that some of them stay after school for a special mental health program. Basically, we look at our kids who we notice are struggling either academically or socially or behaviorally. You know, if they already see our guidance counselor, a social worker, we generally don't um, recommend them, but kids who are not getting any type of counseling services, but they are exhibiting behaviors, we usually recommend those students. The after-school program is being run by a nonprofit organization called iRaise Girls and Boys International. Here's the way it works. It offers activities like dance, basketball, visual arts, or reading and writing help. And while kids are engaged, the two social workers leading the program pull individual students aside to ask how they've been feeling and what's been going on in their friend groups. Some of our kids who are in the program, they are very empathetic towards some of their classmates who are going through trauma, who are going through things. They really do look out for each other and they support each other. That's the point. iRaise's intention is for the conversations with social workers to increase students' self-awareness around their own mental health struggles so that they can be of better support to their friends. Hence the peer mentor part of the program's name. Shaniqua Moore, the founder of IRA's Girls and Boys, says the students referred to the program are usually the ones already looked at as leaders or peer counselors among their classmates. So typically peers may come to them and say, I'm going through this issue or I'm going through this family challenge or God forbid, like I'm not feeling like I want to live anymore. Typically they talk to their peers before they talk to an adult and they're not going to stop talking to peers. That's not going to That's never going to stop happening, right? Um, So what we wanted to do was train them to be peer wellness advocates. Basically, these students become go-betweens. They tell social workers what's really happening with the students and then pass information in the other direction, sharing social worker type advice with their friends. 
Um, so they're essentially partners with the organization and with the school. So they also get training on who the social workers are, who's who in a school, um, and how to support that kid to connect them to the resource that can help them. I spoke with an eighth grader who was referred to the program by one of her teachers. She told me a little bit about what it's been like meeting with one of iRaise's social workers. In the beginning, when she first came, I wasn't really comfortable with speaking with her because I didn't know who she was. And like she just picked me up out of like randomly, so I wasn't sure what to say. But she says the silence between them didn't last for long. Uh, once I got used to her, I like opened up a little bit to her. We started speaking about like anything. She just asked me questions. I just responded to whatever she asked me. But I got comfortable with her after a while. How does it feel in general like to be navigating eighth grade? Difficult. It like for one word I can say I can say it's difficult, but you could push it like you end up pushing through it. Like with the help of the staff members, you can always push through it. Here's an example of how the school pushed through a recent crisis with the help of the peer mentor program. Natasha Sakil is one of PS 178's social workers. So we had a student that recently lost someone, and of course, you know, the, the school was notified, so we all knew about it. We did check in when we could. But this student was, you know, more closed off to staff, but more open to friends. So we would speak to their friends and say, you know, make sure you check in on the student. And so they just had moments when they would just always check in on them and making sure that they were okay. So that's the type of mentoring that we have with them. Sakil says that kind of peer support works for some, but can leave others feeling neglected. When they come to school and they're supposed to have that safe space, you know, we have this to do, we have this to do, so they only really have their friends. And it, it's really hard for those who may not have those relationships. Um, and those may be the ones that fall through the cracks. Sakil says she wishes she could be present for every student presenting issues, especially the ones lacking peer support. But there are just too many for her to realistically treat. It may not even be her role to treat the mental health of every student. That's according to licensed therapist Annalise Sweet, who specializes in treating adolescents and has no connection to the school. If you're the school social worker, their caseloads are insane. I mean, you know, kids are going to fall through the cracks. They've got to just triage them. But Sweet questions whether it makes sense to put that responsibility on kids' shoulders. I think it's a huge burden. Not only are they so stressed out and impacted by what's going on with their peers, um, but those peers, because of their own mental health struggles, trauma, family issues, can't really function as supportive, secure attachments and friends. Sweet says there are benefits to peer support programs, as long as they're structured and heavily facilitated by adults and not used as a substitute for professional treatment. There's something really powerful and necessary about that horizontal connection between peers helping each other with a particular issue. And I do think that that is something that could be tapped into and, and you know, really utilized to help these kids. Um, but I think it requires quite a bit of structure and quite a bit of facilitation. The partnership between PS178 and iRaise Girls and Boys International aims to do just that with its after-school program. Although, Principal Cooper says it's not the ideal solution. I think it would be wonderful if, you know, the city and the state provided us with more social workers, um, more guidance counselors, so that we could really meet the needs of our kids. But in the absence of that, unfortunately, organizations like iRaise do fill the gap in a way that is much needed. 
The iRaise After School program has been implemented in 12 schools so far. The program has received a grant set to triple that number over the coming year. Trisha Stortz, Columbia Radio News. Okay, well next on the show, if you're into clothes like me, the most amazing thing that can happen to you is getting invited to a fashion show, right? Well, if you're a transportation fanatic, there's a different kind of show featuring the coolest looks for the season. It's called a fleet show. Think cutting-edge trucks and sparkling tractors all strutting on the runway. Zeppa Macias got a front-row seat to New York City's 34th annual fleet show. Under the gigantic stainless steel globe in Corona Park, vendors' tents are set up. There's everything here from power tools to tractors to 18-wheelers to cargo vans. A fleet show is meant to advertise new innovative equipment and the latest alternative fuels and emissions-reducing technologies. The new best and innovative that is coming to the market, for sure. That's Donna Tarabile, operations manager for Alta Material Handling. We're a material handling group that uh, specializes in, in movable equipment like forklifts and scissor lifts. Donna took one look at me and saw that I wasn't in the market for a forklift or a scissor lift, but she did direct me to a nice 18-wheeler, all-electric baby. I asked her, where do you charge something like this? And she said, let's ask some of these innovative men, and dragged over Jim Stiegel. Jim poured on the car salesman vibe. It's uh, low maintenance, uh, cheaper to operate, quiet, it's easy to drive, missions free. Yeah. He tells me that the new vehicle is meant for local deliveries and will be charged at the kind of place people with 18-wheelers like to go anyway, Home Depot. The fleet show is filled with, well, mostly men. Khakis and polo shirts are the uniform, they work for transportation companies, logistics firms, and typical run-of-the-mill government agencies. John Muncy and Gregory DeMaio tell me that this is their first fleet show. They work for a company which has the coolest, most badass name in the entire place. Innovative Quantum Logistics. I almost didn't want to ask them what they really do. Our company, uh, basically anybody who needs anything moved, we can handle that. Be it um, full container loads coming in from the ships once they hit the port, we bring it to their door, and then we can also do final mile and deliver it to wherever else they need to go. So, The show feels like a backyard barbecue, but obviously any flames would be a bad thing. Most people here are being paid to buy or sell, but I did spot one group that was here by choice. Okay, it was a 10th grade field trip, but they were excited to be out of the classroom and in the real world of work. Why did your school bring you to a fleet show? Uh, we thought it was like, like a car show, like, you know, things like that. But seeing this type of stuff is just really interesting because it helps the environment and all this good, good stuff. Yes. Real nice learning experience, see all the vehicles out. You know, we have a program in our school for NYPD and emergency services to work on vehicles. So it's really relatable to our school. Yep. Helps everything. Seeing different um, opportunities for internships and stuff is pretty interesting. Um, a lot of cool stuff to see. Not the cool stuff I want to see, but a lot of cool <laughs> You don't want to see power tools? <laughs> I mean, power tools are cool. I just don't have the money to buy them, so yeah. I'm not looking at that. I was really hoping that I would get to drive something here, or at the very least, blow the horn on a nice, shiny 18-wheeler. But the only person willing to let me touch the equipment was someone selling a golf cart. <laughs> so this is the only horn I got. Does this have yeah. a horn? Yes, it does. Can I hear it? There <laughs> <laughs> you are. Isapa Macias, Columbia Radio News. This is Uptown Radio. I'm Thomas Copeland. 
2023 will forever be known as the year that artificial intelligence came to town. And there'll be loads of debates about how AI can be used ethically. But New York City has been struggling with this AI question for a few years now. In 2020, they passed a law regulating the use of AI in employment decisions. And what happened next might tell us a lot about the future of AI regulation. Hi. I recently visited a community centre in Harlem. It's the home of Youth Action Youth Build, a non-profit that helps young people, most of them black and Latino, find decent jobs in the city. In here? Thanks very much. Karim, good to see you, sir. How's things? You good? I'm here to meet Karim Kaiser. He's 25 and graduated from the programme here just a few years back. I found a flyer for Youth Build in my building, and once I came in, um, the experience basically changed my life. Now, Karim works at Youth Action Youth Build himself. He helps teach employability skills here. Most of the young people have never written a resume before, and Karim often shows his own resume as an example. As you can see, um, kind of what we, kind of like what we teach our students. I don't have my my address on my um, resume or CV. So no address at the top of the resume. No, unfortunately not. Karim tells me the reason he's removing his address is because of artificial intelligence. He knows that often computers will scan resumes and make judgments based on the smallest things, even addresses. So he's vague. AI may feel like a new thing in writing and graphic design, but it's been used for ages in the employment process. It's called Automated Employment Decision Tools. Rudy Shetty is from the Center for Democracy and Technology. She says these tools come in three different forms. You have the tools that are used for targeted advertisement of job postings. You have tools that scan resumes, um, and you have uh, personality and aptitude assessment tools. The problem is that these tools have to learn what to look for. Sometimes the employer will tell the tools what they really want. So spit me out all the resumes of people who know how to use Microsoft Excel. But often, the tool will think for itself. It will examine the characteristics of the candidates that that employer has successfully hired in the past, and then copy them. That's why Karim tells his students to leave their address off their resumes, because he knows that Harlem residents have a weaker employment record than other parts of the city. This type of algorithmic decision-making is also how you end up with problems like this one, reported by Reuters. Amazon software engineers recently uncovered a big problem. Their new online recruiting tool did not like women. The glitch stemmed from the fact that Amazon's computer models were trained by observing patterns in resumes of job candidates over a 10-year period, largely from men, in effect teaching themselves that male candidates were preferable. Motivated by high-profile cases like that Amazon example, in early 2020, the New York City Council introduced a new law to regulate automated employment decision tools. It would go on to be called Local Law 144. And that's when things get complicated. Here's what happened next. So in the original law, the people who made and sold these AI tools would have to run a bias audit. That's a check to make sure their tools weren't discriminating against anyone. That bill went nowhere. A year later, the council tried again. And in the revised law, things were different. Instead of the people who sell the tools having to check for discrimination, employers would be the ones who have to run a bias audit. This law passed, but when the final rules were developed, Rudy Shetty noticed that something odd was happening to the definition of which AI tools were being regulated. 
Over the course of New York City's process, we encountered the definition of automated employment decision tools becoming narrower, applying to fewer sets of tools, uh, and leaving a lot of um, influential tools out of the conversation. In the original law, all tools that substantially assist human decision-making would be subject to a bias audit. So that's CV scanners, video interview analyzers, personality tests, basically anything that plays a meaningful role in how people get hired. But by the end of the rulemaking process, that definition had changed. Only tools that entirely outweigh or overrule human decision-making will have to be audited. But Shetty says that's a situation that almost never occurs in the real world, certainly not one that many companies would admit to. The ultimate consequence of the narrowing of this definition is that it's going to make it very easy for employers and vendors to avoid accountability. So why? Why was the definition made so narrow? Well, the people who were pushing for a narrower definition were largely those representing employers. And one of those people was Christopher Gilrain from TechNet, an association representing around 100 tech companies in the Northeast. Our member companies were extremely uh, concerned that the breadth of the definition would have roped in things like basic keyword search uh, or sorting functionality, filtering, labeling, basic tools uh, that help hiring managers sort through and organize the deluge of uh, resumes and applications that they receive. The companies that Gilrain represents were worried that if they had to conduct and pay for a bias audit on all of these tools, that would make hiring anyone a total nightmare. What Gilrain and Shetty do agree is that the definition of automated employment decision tools that's used here in New York could be really influential for the future of AI regulation. Establishing kind of a precedential definition in New York City that could be used as a, uh, as a model elsewhere states uh, that are looking to regulate in this space uh, may use that as the jumping off point and then we've created a, a problem that, that grows. Back in Harlem, Karim Kaiser has been watching this whole process and he's disappointed. He threw his support behind the original law but he thinks that the final rules have no teeth. I think it's unfortunate that you know my whole life I dealt with um, being denied access to different resources and opportunities from um, a person and now that our young people the next generation kind of has to be discriminated against by um, AI, a face that they won't see. Local Law 144 with its final narrower definition comes into effect on July 4th. But for now, Karim will keep telling his students to keep their address off their resume. Well, thanks for being with us here at Uptown Radio. I'm Thomas Copeland. It's time now for the next instalment in our commentary series. Elizabeth Erb reflects on how learning to dance a jig taught her the value of friendship. From a young age, I wanted to be a performer. I grew up in Michigan in a suburb of Detroit, and my parents signed me up for ballet. I wore pink tights and a black leotard. At recitals, dozens of little girls ran around in the same frilly tutu, our mom's red lipstick smeared across our faces. I lived for the recitals. I was an outgoing kid. Leaping across the stage was a five-year-old's natural high. But there was this unspoken social hierarchy between the ballet girls. Most of them went to the same school, which wasn't the school that I went to. They'd all talk about things from earlier in their day, like what happened on the playground at recess. You know, critical elementary school things. 
This was over 20 years ago, so it's hard for me to remember the details, but it was clear I wasn't part of their clique. I felt like an outsider. I told my mom that I wanted to quit. She would always say, okay, but you have to stick it out till the end of the year. And then, of course, the recital would roll around, the lights, the costumes, the applause. It was the best feeling ever, like Christmas and my birthday all wrapped into one. I enrolled back in class in the fall, and the cycle of hating ballet would start all over. But one day in first grade, some Irish dancers came to perform at school for a St. Patrick's Day thing. The accordion music played a jig, and the dancers started bouncing up and down. Their arms were glued to their sides as their legs kicked furiously. This was not ballet. They looked like they were having so much fun. I had never seen anything like it. And I got a glimpse of backstage life, too. The dancers were helping zip each other up in their dresses. It seemed like they were all genuinely friends. I begged my parents to sign me up. And the next fall, I began. I was so excited. Soon, the basic one, two, three, hop, two, two, three turned into more complicated footwork. Over the years, I progressed through the levels by going to competitions. My whole class would travel all over the Midwest. We'd go from convention center to convention center. We were like a traveling soccer team only with sparkly dresses and ringlet wigs. I practiced my routines for months. Finally, I would get on stage and compete solo in front of three judges. But it didn't feel like I was being judged. One time, I slipped and fell on stage, flat on my butt. I popped back up like nothing had happened, and I could hear my friends applauding. It could have been so embarrassing, but I knew I had their support. Unlike ballet, Irish dance wasn't a clicky environment. We competed against each other for all the same prizes, usually either a trophy or a white china vase with green shamrocks on it. But we were all so close. One time, my friend Siobhan got first place in Dublin, Ohio, that is. It was a big deal. Not only did she win first place, she got to perform that night at a huge festival. It was like Coachella for the Irish. We all sat in the front row to cheer her on. Even though I didn't win that day, I was still so happy to support her. I stopped dancing when I went to college. I studied acting instead. With auditioning, there are more no's than yeses. Sometimes my friends book jobs that I also tried out for. But to me, a win for one is a win for everyone. A few weeks ago, I went home to visit my parents, and there it was, under my bed like a time capsule. My Irish dance dress. I hadn't tried it on since I was 18. It's hot pink, like super hot pink, with rhinestones and blue and white embroidery. I thought, what the heck, I'll put it on, humor myself to see if it still fits. And guess what? It did. And now it's time for one of our most popular segments here at Uptown Radio. For the very last time, let us deliver you a slice of the city. It's mostly about creating the perfect ambience for the, the stage, the current stage that the player is in. Composer of video game music, Aviram Spies. 
lately because of COVID, actually, I got more into video games. We were just together in the apartment, all the roommates, and we started playing uh, some games. And I completely fell in love with it. This specific game is an incredible game. It's called Grease, which is uh, gray in Spanish. The whole game is sort of like colored with, with watercolors. I wanted to do something that would portray that. Something that's calm, something that's very, very, very peaceful. The most difficult thing is nailing the right atmosphere. You're listening to Uptown Radio, Thursdays at 4. I'm Thomas Copeland. Thanks very much for being with us. There's data and then there's dating. And then there's the data on the dating. Specifically, data that shows the number of people using mobile dating apps is down by almost 14% this year. So what are they doing instead? We sent Isabel Tier to find out the ways that young single New Yorkers are connecting off their phones. Earlier this year, the dating app Tinder launched its first ever global brand campaign. You've probably seen the ads. There are posters all over the subways. And then there are the commercials. In one, a couple is sitting facing each other in a green leather booth. They're in this super hip bar with striped wallpaper and dim lighting. Some Tinder dates turn into one night stands. Then the girl leans in to kiss the guy, and suddenly the scene changes. It's the same couple, but now they're in a furniture store, shopping. But some turn into two night stands. Tinder is calling its campaign, it starts with a swipe. They're poking fun at their reputation as being the dating app for casual sex. It's clever. And Tinder needs to be clever right now, if it wants to stay relevant. The number of people downloading the app has declined for the last three years in a row. But this downward trend isn't unique to Tinder. In general, dating apps are getting dumped. Data shows that American usage of dating apps has declined by almost 14% since last year. And it looks like women are leading this charge. A report from Sensor Tower shows that the top dating apps in the U.S., like Tinder, Bumble, and Hinge, all saw a year-over-year decrease in the number of female user downloads, which analysts say is bad news for the app's long term. But it's good news for 26-year-old Victoria Van Ness. Hi, my name is Victoria Van Ness. I am the founder of Amber, a members-only social club for eligible singles in New York City. Van Ness founded Amber as a way to get young people back to connecting with each other in person. If you go to the Amber website, the first thing you'll see on the home page, aside from a photo of two couples making out, are the words, we're off the apps, in capital letters. I hear so many of my girlfriends especially who say that they want to meet someone in person and they just can't, they don't know how, you know, it's just too much. You have to apply to be an Amber member. And if you're accepted, then you'll be invited to their different events. In many ways, Van Ness simply reinvented the wheel, speed dating and mixers. But she made it cool again, something exclusive, where a singles mixer is known as a slow burn party. And one of those meditation sound bowls is used to signal the end of your speed date, which, by the way, is happening in some sexy cocktail lounge. Only when it comes to what Van Ness is looking for, it isn't something her business provides. She's still hoping for something to happen totally organically. 
I'm kind of waiting for the time that like I'm in the Whole Foods and the guy drops an orange and I'm like, oh, here's your orange. And then it's just the best, cutest, meat cute ever. But the thing is, is that like I haven't really been dropping the oranges. You know what I mean? She means she's not really allowing for that kind of moment to happen. Vanessa's focused on growing her business. So she hasn't exactly been lingering in the fruit section of her Williamsburg Whole Foods. Coincidentally, Paulina Rosario is also hoping a type of fruit will spark her next relationship. Only Rosario's fruit will be a pear. She bought the viral pear ring, a bright turquoise ring made out of rubber. It's like the opposite of a wedding ring, meant to signal to the whole world that you're single and would like to be approached, asked out. I was born and raised in Mexico City. So for me, I came from a different background and I really enjoyed this interaction with uh, more organic, which I think that's what is, this ring is, is going to give me. There's just one problem. Have you seen anyone using the pear ring in person yet? I haven't. Not yet. Rosario is in her mid-30s, and she found out about the pear ring on a Facebook group called Are We Dating the Same Guy? where women post photos of men they've met through dating apps to make sure they aren't about to go on a date with another woman's boyfriend or partner or a crazy serial killer. She's pretty over the apps. So even though she hasn't met anyone yet, Paulina Rosario is sticking with the pair ring. I would love for a guy to come and say hi, good morning. I will be able to, to, to see the, you know, his, his face what he's how he's talking to me the tone of his voice all those kind of things that are tell, giving you more information you know so you can grab more information about if you want to go out with that person gathering information about dates wasn't the problem for vivian o'brien her problem was that the guys she was meeting on the apps had no interests it was just kind of a deluge of people none of whom really knew what they were looking for and it had just kind of felt like their phones had become their hobby this freaked O'Brien out. So she dumped the dating apps and adopted a meeting-in-real-life strategy. She started dating hobbies instead of people. Trapeze class, blacksmithing class, pottery class, love pottery, wine tastings, rock climbing was really fun, gardening, cycling, not a big runner. That one was quickly checked off. Like speed dating through activities. Yeah, 100%. Way more fun. And it worked. She met her now boyfriend through a group that does weekend camping excursions outside of the city. We were in the same car driving to this trip, and I was sitting in the back seat, and he was driving. We kept kind of what I thought was, you know, nice, sexy eye contact, making sexy eye contact through the rearview mirror. Later that night, she helped him cook dinner for the whole camping trip. They've been together ever since, which is encouraging news for someone like Garrett Coleman. Coleman is 32, single, and a member of Amber, the single social club from earlier. He's also quit dating apps. The amount of energy you're spending in your phone and time on your phone is not, the, the, the effort is not worth what's coming from it. Like Vivian O'Brien, he saves his energy and his eye contact for other spaces. I will say running on the West Side Highway, if you really want to make some scandalous eye contact, that's the place you want to be. Eager to witness this scandalous eye contact strategy in action, I made plans to meet Coleman on the West Side Highway. But he stood me up. I guess some things about dating never change. 
Isabel Tier, Columbia Radio News. Well, now a final thought for our final show. Reporter Trisha Stortz learns that being independent can sometimes mean leaning on others. When I was growing up, my grandma and I were always super close. We lived in Jersey, about a 10-minute drive apart. My mom was a single parent and always working, so when it came time for dinner, my grandma and grandpa were usually the adults at the table. My grandma was the one who taught me how to tie my shoes. We used the belt on my fuzzy pink bathrobe because she could see my frustration over tiny shoelaces and confusion over the bunny ear versus the loop method. She was also the one who sewed the patches on my chocolate brown Girl Scout vest and excitedly helped me transition from a brownie to a junior mint. She was my backup parent when my mom was spread thin. When I was 12, my mom remarried and we moved to New York. Suddenly, a guy named Paul was living with us. I was also getting used to a new school in a new city, struggling with all of the changes at once. And even though my grandma couldn't be physically present for as many of my milestone moments, she was still emotionally present. We talked on the phone constantly. Like so many teenagers, my mom and I were always at odds. Phone calls to my grandma were like therapy sessions to vent about the latest injustices between my parents and I. Like when my mom wouldn't let me shave my head or when I wanted to go to parties at friends' houses without any adult knowledge or permission. All I wanted was my independence and my grandma seemed to understand me best. She too was learning how to do a lot of things by herself for the first time because my grandpa had recently died. My grandma couldn't drive or cook many meals on her own. She didn't even know what bank accounts she had or with what banks. Those were all things that my grandpa handled when he was alive. My mom was pushing her to hire a home aide for extra assistance so that she wouldn't be so lost without support. But my grandma felt an aide would be a threat to her privacy and independence. You can imagine our phone calls. Lots of ranting and raving about my mom overstepping in both of our lives. It's possible that we weren't seeing her intentions clearly, but... At least we were validating each other's feelings. For an entire year, I visited her every weekend. I remember feeling extremely adult. Now I was the one doing the cooking. I was 19, and dinner was burnt hot dogs and potato chips as a side. My grandma was 86 and supposed to be practicing walking every day. She'd tell me she was going to take her steps in the hallway of her apartment building, but when I would look out the peephole of her front door, I'd see her sitting on her walker instead. We were both stubborn. I was trying to claim my independence while she was clinging to hers. And before she passed away six years ago, my grandma left me a letter hoping that I would learn how to function as a responsible adult without the need for anyone to carry me. Now, as a fully adult 25-year-old, I realize asking for help is a necessary part of being independent. My grandma used to leave voicemails with the smallest details of her day just to remind me that she was there if I needed. And... I still listen to them. Hi, Trish, it's Nan. I was just eating a blueberry muffin that Poppy made, and I was thinking about you, because you like them. And uh, I can't get you, but uh, I'll give you a call back. Okay, thinking about you, hon, love you. Miss you. Uh, Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Well, that is it for this edition of Uptown Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. 
Our executive producer today was Elizabeth Erb. Leading our staff of reporters was senior producer Isabel Tier. Director Valentina Zarez Martinez coordinated our studio production team. Our producer, Vitran, led our copy team and assisted in the studio. Henrietta McFarland delivered our local newscast. Day reporters Trisha Stortz and Azeppa Macias brought you the latest on the ground in New York. Our instructors, Sally Herships, Robert Smith, and Lydia McLovin Merritt advised our staff. That is the last edition of Uptown Radio for this season, but you can listen back to all our stories and more at uptownradio.org. From all of us here at Uptown Radio, thank you so much for listening.